Welcome to the Mark Cameron Show. We find out why people do what they do, how they do it, and what the future of their work is. My guest today is Andy Bevan. Andy is part of International Justice Mission, or IGM. He's been a good mate of mine for a few years now, and I love the way that he draws together his passion for human rights and his passion for the outdoors. Check them out at IGMUK.org. Enjoy. Cheers. Cheers. Andy, good to have you. This is the first time I've done an in-person recording in uh, in the house for a while, so it's such a pleasure that it's yourself. Amazing. Well, it's great to be here, yeah. Mark, yeah. and I've just enjoyed your toilet with the most <laughs> wonderful view. Thank you so across much. Across the Firth of Forth. Looking yeah. at the stunning Fourth Rail Bridge. So that is it's great um, to be here. That's the highest compliment that <laughs> we hope people have about our home uh, each time people come. So um, we hope you'll use it again. Great, I shall. <laughs> I, think... I even took a picture of it, Mark. Is oh, good. Right? No, that's fine. That's fine. I good. think it's the best P view in Scotland, but the second best in the UK. And the first best in the UK is the Shard in London. Wow. Because it has like a tinted window on one side, the looking inside. But you're like, I don't know, 40, uh, 80 stories up and you get a beautiful view of London. Amazing. So I think that kind of tops it. I once had a vaguely similar experience in New York when we went to this quite trendy club. (laughs) And I went to the toilet and it was the most amazing window across uh, downtown (laughs) uh, Manhattan Island. Wow. So that's up there, but today was a very strong rival. Does it beat the New York one? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say it beat it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's what's important. When were you in New York? Uh, it was when... So I've been to New York quite a few times. So my first time in New York was when I was doing an internship uh, with International Justice Mission in Washington, D.C. and travelled up to New York for a couple of weekends. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then more recently, my uh, in-laws uh, lived in New York for 10 years. Right, yeah. they're, they're back in Edinburgh now, which is wonderful to have them close by, but it's also kind of sad that, that we you don't, don't have, the have digs. free accommodation <laughs> on Manhattan Island. Um, but yeah, I had the pleasure of going to see them wow. a good few times as yeah. well. So. Um, and you mentioned I, IGM, International Justice Mission, is who you've been working for for nine years now uh so so on staff for ijm in the uk for just over eight years yeah yeah um but my internship that i mentioned just then was back in 2012 at the start of 2012 right and really since then have been pretty involved with ijm so the best part of 10 years now have been heavily involved in the work that we do so i'm I'm really excited to, to chat about it because I think it's been an organisation that has like impressed me to no end, solidly that whole mm. time. I think I met you maybe eight years ago. I hadn't heard of it before, but just seeing the work, how you operate, who you operate with, the the love that goes through it, the faith that goes through it, mm. is um, it's quite moving, actually. Um, so it's amazing. Maybe get to hear a bit more about, yeah. about that. So how, how did you end up you know, doing what you're doing? And what do you do? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, I guess like all of us, we're meandering through life. Mm. And, you know, we're all on journeys that go take us to different different places. 
Um, and I think how I ended up with IJM, you know, far predates, you know, 2012 when I actually was more actively involved in it. So I think, you know, look at my upbringing, yeah. the influence of my mum and dad's. Um, my mum, uh, like I grew up in a in a church community and my mum was one of those people who would come with the latest petition and get everyone in the church to oh, sign wow. it to then send it off to the local MP or mm-hmm. whatever it would be. So something of my mum's like heart for justice and heart to engage in advocacy and activism um, definitely like impacted me and like mm. probably didn't know it at the time. I was probably just embarrassed because my mum was going <laughs> around doing that. Um, but... You know, something of that in the, with the benefit of hindsight, I can definitely see that's kind of teed yeah. me up to where I am. Yeah. Um, and then I guess a couple of other big influences. Uh, when I went to university, I studied law um, and kind of ummed and ahed a little bit as to whether I was going to be a lawyer or not. Um, decided that I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, but something that particularly stood out to me during my legal studies was you know, just the concept that, you know, you look at people groups all around the world, uh, you look at uh, countries all around the world, and they have codes of conduct, which mm. kind of like govern how one another relate to yeah. each other. Um, and I was just really interested in the kind of socio-legal dimension to law, yeah. um, particularly looking at stuff like criminal law, looking at human rights law. Um, but yeah, decided not to practice as a lawyer. Um, but I think Certainly that experience of yeah. studying law has kind of led me to, to IJM. Um, and then when I moved away from law, I studied theology for a couple of years, wow. actually. Um, and that was an interesting few years that maybe just filled in a bit of the context to my mm-hmm. story, my upbringing. Um, you know, why my mum was passionate about those things is that, you know, in a... In church Christian context, she believed in a, a God who we see in the Bible as a God of justice, who right. calls the church to be involved in that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the reason why people groups all around the world have something of this understanding of justice is because, you know, from a Christian perspective, like people are image bearers of the God of justice. Right. So all these things kind of begin began falling into place for me a little bit and then at that point I applied to do the internship with IJN mm-hmm. and yeah moved to Washington DC wow. uh, for yep. I was just there for about four or five months um absolutely loved it yeah uh, brilliant so what was it like um just getting on board with what they were doing there but being in DC yeah. other than it just being like a movie the entire time <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it was brilliant it was um I was I was a late comer to the West Wing. <laughs> it was probably actually my time in DC that prompted me then to watch the yeah. West Wing. So I quickly consumed <laughs> all of the seasons of the West Wing when I got back from DC, um, and it is quite similar. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite similar to what you, you see just in walk the West and Wing. talk and walk and talk. And... At, at that point, IJM they've chilled out a little bit now on their dress code but at that point their dress code was pretty sharp so like I had to you know go fully suited and booted wow um and yeah I found myself up on Capitol Hill every now and again and engaging with 
um, congressmen and women and senators speaking about the work that IGM does. So, um, so yeah, it was a really interesting yeah. experience. Um, DC is just a fascinating place as well. Like if you or yeah, I want to go. Folks listening haven't been. It's, it's definitely worth checking out. Amazing museums, mm. the Smithsonian Museum kind of family, completely free to go to all of these wow. museums. And yeah. It's just a wealth of knowledge and experiences. Um, and then just walking around DC, like whenever I love traveling and whenever I go to a new place, I want to walk and yeah. experience it on foot. And you engage with the people of that place a lot more when you're you know just walking yeah. so so I, I loved walking around dc and uh, just kind of seeing seeing what it was like and and like many cities like huge expanse between like the wealthiest people in dc and the poorest people mm. like, huge disparities mm-hmm. as well so so that was hard to see but also like interesting to see yeah, from yeah. just uh understanding the yeah the culture and the context a bit more i mean so. you're some of them are pulling together this like experience of faith and law and uh, purpose and getting this uh, joining this group igm and, mm. and and so what what um what does igm do then yeah you, know, let's, you were you were there um watching them work on, on capitol hill you know even at that time what yeah. what was the original purpose of it how did it all get going yeah, so I was there in 2012, um, but IGM was founded actually back in 1997. Mm-hmm. And it was founded by a guy um, who I've had the privilege of spending a, a good bit of time with over the years, a guy called uh, Gary Haugen. Mm. Um, and Gary was, prior to IGM, working for the Department of US Department of Justice. He was a lawyer. He was helping prosecute um, police who were corrupt. Uh, wow. within the US. Um, during that time, he was seconded to lead um, a UN team of lawyers and investigators to go out to Rwanda mm. uh, in the immediate aftermath from the genocide. And, you know, as you can imagine, a crazy experience for him um, to see just the devastation mm. that was wrought on that country. Yeah. Um, and I guess he came back with a few reflections. Like one, you know, as as a Christian, his his faith was rocked yeah. by what he saw. Like, yeah. you know, how how could how could God allow this to have happened? Um, and for him, that the more he reflected on that, the the more the question changed to actually, how could Christians allow that to happen? Huh. Um, his okay. understanding of God was that He is with the broken. He's mm. in the ashes of broken lives. But actually, the call is for the church to step into those difficult places, step into the darkness in order to bring something of God's love into it. Um, So that was kind of one of his reflections. The other one with his legal hat on was actually like, where was the justice system? Actually, at an early stage, could have stopped the violence from escalating into Mm -hmm. full-blown genocide. Mm -hmm. So he came, came back with those two kind of questions and kind of reflected on them um and essentially did a a bit of an audit into organizations that were working around the world looking at anti-poverty work and there were very few if any that were actively engaged Mm. with a justice system partnering with that justice system in order to bring 
justice for yeah. people who had been a victim of violence, but also to like stop the violence from yeah. happening in the first yeah. place. Um, so that kind of set the scene for IJM, and in 1997, IJM was founded. Um, and really, the first 10 years of IJM was trying to work out, is it possible to get justice for an individual who has been a victim of violence in a context where the justice system is is broken and mm. is dysfunctional? Wow. So for 10 years, IJM persisted with that and set about trying to work work that out. Take so the, 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 this would be like the, the example of if, um, if the anti-poverty you know, campaign is brilliantly like, okay, we're going to build a clean water well yeah. and it's two miles from your village instead of 10 miles. Mm-hmm. Then, but if in that two mile journey, a person is assaulted, robbed, raped, yeah. then, you know, actually the, the well isn't going to function for the community if the people can't safely engage with, with resource or with... 100%. Right. And, e- and even... Even closer to home, if the well is built in your community, mm-hmm. but then, you know, someone with more power and influence than yeah. you kicks you off your land yeah. and you're left without a home, without land that you can grow food for your family, without land that you can grow food for the market. That is a, a, yeah. a death sentence. And yeah. there's, you know, this, this problem of violence is something that IJM have sought to come alongside. Yeah. And, and actually, in order to... Um, really propel the anti-poverty efforts that we see around the world there's an underlying issue that needs to be addressed and that is this issue of violence right so so ijm in this first 10 years was was going after the one and seeing you know is it possible to to get justice for this individual and through sheer grit and determination we find out that it was and so that then propelled us into the next 10 years of you know is it actually possible to get broad systemic change uh you know Mm. in how the justice system responds to issues of violence um so going beyond just the one but going to the many um and over that second 10-year period we launched various multi-year projects which which demonstrated that it was actually possible to have a measurable impact on how the justice system operates when it comes alongside issues of violence how did how did they do that yeah, so um, so I guess one big example in that kind of second 10-year period was a four-year partnership that we had with the Gates Foundation, and they partnered with our office in Cebu in the Philippines. Um, and at that point of time, our office in Cebu was looking at the issue of child sex trafficking. So children who were trafficked into the commercial sex industry and were being exploited. Mm-hmm. Um huge proportion of uh, children present in that industry at at that time and we set about this uh, four-year project with the target of reducing that number by 20 percent and the way in which we do it is really carry out IJM's model of work Mm -hmm. of taking on cases uh, so taking on uh, trying to get justice for these individuals yeah But then really using that, not only to get justice for the individual, but use it as a diagnostic tool to where Mm. some of the cracks in the pipeline exist. And it might be a lack of training. It might be a lack of resourcing. um, It might be the issue of corruption. Um, So we journey with uh, goodwilled members of the justice (laughs) system in order to try and come alongside some of those challenges. 
Um, and at the end of the four years, uh, what we actually found was a 79% oh reduction gosh. Uh, in the number of children who were present in the sex industry rather than the target 20%. Um, and yeah, so, so through projects like yeah. that in different parts of the world, we were able to see that, okay, this model is, is have, having, an ish, uh, having an impact. Mm-hmm. And really where we're at now is we're in this next 10-year period and we, we want to stop the violence from happening yeah. in the first place because justice systems consistently uh, turn up and uphold laws and protect the people of their country from those who are violent. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's where where we're at just Gosh, now. We're yeah. looking to to scale up the work that we've done through through partners, train partners in our model of yeah, work. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Right. And it's um, I always find it quite fascinating. I I remember once having it at an event, and I I think I described IGM as having both um, teeth and balls <laughs> in how they <laughs> operate, which might not go in your posters or your <laughs> yeah. your, your tweets, but um, but it did feel like it had um, clout to, to work with the reality of an unjust system mm. and journey with individuals very, like, very lovingly, look at, at support care, social care, mm. um, as well as look for convictions and yeah. look for, you know, assessing um, assessing a, a crime in play and working with the local justice system yeah. and partnering with them to, to operations and to follow that through, as, as well as... You know, this amazing way of just saying that they believe that they can do something about it that um that you know particularly in slavery you know, i think that's been a key part of, of it, the work that there's huge work to be done and they're getting at it 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 has and and i think a huge part of that is being in it for the long mm-hmm. run as well because you know i think when you're putting forward a model um you know, it might be like people want quick wins. They want, you know, I'm going to fund this for a year. Let's see how it gets on. I'm going to fund this for two years, for four years. Let's see how it gets on. And we can present impact over that time. Mm -hmm. But actually, our work in the Philippines, for example, we're now not looking at the issue of sex trafficking because for 15 years, Mm -hmm. we Mm -hmm. consistently applied our model and we worked with the justice system and now we're able to step away because the justice system yep. is consistently responding to the issue of sex trafficking there. And that has come about because of determination. Yeah. It's coming about uh, it's come about because of being in it for the long the yeah. long run. So yeah. um so yeah, definitely te- teeth and balls. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um and you know, for you then, so you, you got into the role like you're saying in dc you did the, the internship and work with them and then you've been in scotland now doing the role for eight eight years or so and, yeah. and that's emerged and that's growing and um super interested for you like how how do you do what you do because like it's it's big work i know anyone involved in human rights issues um it is both very you know, a, a passionate cause, and it's about the reality. And it's not that you work in human rights; it's that you work on human rights abuses. You know, yeah. that's that's the reason that these are in the job. So, yeah. how how do you do that day yeah. by day, and and kind of handle the the caseloads that you hear about and, yeah. and the work? So you're right. It is it is brutal. The stuff that we hear about on a mm. daily basis, whether it's a child who's been a victim of 
online yeah. sexual exploitation, whether it's a grandparent who has been enslaved in a brick kiln in mm. South Asia for mm-hmm. 40 years of her life, you know, whether it's a, a boy who's been trafficked into the fishing industry in Ghana, all of these things are, are really hard. Um, and at IJM, we find a few things that have helped us mm. um, navigate that. Um, one is hope um, mm. and actually really gripping on to the stories of yeah. hope that we've seen throughout IJM, that, that first conviction yeah. that, that we had back in the early 2000s, that first um, you know, individual that experienced justice mm. for the hurt that mm-hmm. she had experienced. Um, and really, throughout IJM, there's been over over 65,000 individuals who have been rescued out of different situations of slavery and violence. Wow. And actually, if you break that down, that's individual lives we're yes. talking about yeah. there. And each of those individuals is now living in freedom mm. and, you know, are at varying stages of their journey of healing, yeah. but they're in freedom and in a position to begin healing yeah so each one of those stories is 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 hopeful yes so so hope is hope is a key thing um for us at ijm ijm is a a christian organization and we believe that we need to have rhythms that actually stop us taking on the weight of Mm. what we're seeing Mm -hmm. onto our own shoulders but actually throw off the weight Mm -hmm. um so we have rhythms of stillness at the start of the day um quite counterintuitive countercultural mm. like we get to our office at the start of the day and we stop we don't open up our right. laptop and get stuck into emails yeah, yeah. we have the first half an hour of our day in stillness yeah. putting the day wow. uh, you know b- before god um, so that is something that has been a huge lifeline yeah, for us yeah, and, yeah. and choosing to stop and choosing to throw off the weight um, and i guess the final thing i would say as well is um uh, is the role that joy uh, mm. plays um, when coming alongside horrific <laughs> things in yeah. our world. And that might sound kind of like, kind of weird and not like, how on earth can you be joyful when you are coming alongside this? Um, but actually, uh, you know, the, the joy, <laughs> to quote the Bible, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Okay. And actually yeah. we, we like, we apply that to our, our lives and, like I've had the privilege of going and seeing some of our work firsthand in South Asia, and they are probably some of the most joyous places. I, our wow. offices, some of the most joyous places I've ever been in, um, and that is because joy is a key component of the mm. work of justice. Because that's a, um, you know, you go and there's a lot of fun that yeah. happens with our teams. There's a lot of laughter, humour. And that's something which helps us navigate some of the more weighty Gosh. things. Yeah. Wow. Um, and and so what, you know, what, what for you is going to be the, um, the way that you'd like to see it go over the next little while for you and how who are you becoming as you've <laughs> um, continued in this role and it shaped more you and yeah. your faith too? Yeah, I... My becoming. Um, so I think I, I'm about to step into a new role uh, with IJM. Um, and I was sensing earlier this year that it was probably time for 
a new challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and very honestly and openly, like that was, I was hoping that was going to be a new challenge and rule within IGM mm-hmm. because I'm passionate about it. But if that, you know, didn't present yeah. itself, it, I might have gone on to something else. But um, thankfully, a, a rule has presented <laughs> itself uh, within IGM. So, so for me, it's it's going to be stepping into quite a new area of work, um, working a lot more alongside the UK and the devolved governments in a kind of more advocacy sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also taking forward IGM's relatively new work that we're doing in Eastern Europe, looking at the issue of trafficking, um, particularly cross-border trafficking from Eastern Europe into Western Europe, yeah. including into the UK. Um, and that's going to be quite new for me. And I'm going to go into it open to, to learn, uh, take my experiences, take my meanderings kind of into that. Mm. And hopefully, you know, that will, will help me to really thrive in that, but then also just be open to yeah. to work out what rhythms look like, what what my job looks like, what yeah. that area of work looks like. Um, and yeah, it was just a... a I feel called to this work. Um, I'm passionate about this work and I didn't feel like it was time to go yeah. elsewhere. So yeah. going into the unknown a little bit, <laughs> um, but but yeah, excited for it. Too. Yeah, yeah. It is like, I, I think it is a bit remarkable um, what happens and, and the people that are around it, like you say, that drawing together of joy and hope Um and teeth and balls together, <laughs> like that. Uh, that's quite remarkable. And and there there is also I, I understand that hopefulness because I think sometimes, um, when you're working in anything at scale like that, it's mm. it's really hard to see individualized impacted or hard to see change. Yeah. Um, but fascinating the way that I think IGM has, you know, constructed a method to say this is how we review what we're doing this is how we think it might be successful that because you're looking at statistics of lives mm-hmm. changed and of um and of convictions and the like so yeah it's very exciting where it's going for you um yeah and so that there's a way of like you know you do this amazing work and um but a lot of a lot of you the other parts of your life really feed into yeah. who you are and um what one of those is the outdoors eh? it's yeah that, joy of being in i mean scotland is is the most beautiful country in the world uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, west is best west is be- it's absolutely true it's absolutely and, that, true. and that's coming from someone who has lived basically all his life on the east coast of scotland oh, yeah. and has a strong affiliation to the west uh, to the east coast of scotland. oh there you go <laughs> <laughs> but the west coast of scotland is yeah beautiful. yeah so that way of um you know, the outdoors for you brings you say, about healing and enjoyment and a sense of belonging. What's that like for you? Yeah. Well, I think, um, goodness, I, I, to be honest, I think this goes back to my upbringing a little bit as well. Yeah. This time my dad rather than my mum. Mm. My dad is a very keen bird watcher. No way. <laughs> He's a twitcher. Um, and... I have taken on some of that have myself. You? I have. Um, yes. I'm not like one of those geeks who like. Not yet. But <laughs> not yet. This is good. My my brother has developed into one of those geeks, <laughs> but I'm not quite there yet. Um, so so my dad brought us up with a pre- an appreciation for nature, an appreciation for being outdoors, and 
and I grew up most of my childhood just on the outskirts of Aberdeen. Mm. Uh, so still within the city bounds, but in a rural part. Yeah. Um, and I think just really from then, like I've just really appreciated being outdoors, yeah. um, you know, seeing beauty around us, um, taking an active interest, noticing nature, whether that's birds or trees or other forms of wildlife. Um, breathing in um, mm. air, which isn't, you know, city yeah. air. Yeah. Um, and I think over the past couple of years with lockdown, with the pandemic, mm. you know, it's been spoken about lot, a lot, but we've all discovered something of our inbuilt connection yes. and need for being outdoors. Yeah. Um, you know, whether that's our kind of daily exercise that we did during lockdown and going out for our walk around mm -hmm. the block or whether that's like taking note of the seasons in a more intentional way and actually you know that first lockdown you know actually seeing buds coming back yeah. on the trees yeah um seeing the daffodils kind of emerging yeah. out of the ground deer walking about the city here <laughs> yeah exactly um so so I think there's something in that, isn't mm -hmm. there? And, mm -hmm. and actually it speaks to our, our needs uh, to be connected yeah. to the world around us, not only like people and cities and work, but also the natural world around yeah. us. Um, you know, going up a mountain, going into a forest, um, you know, going swimming uh, in a loch or at yeah. the sea or getting the paddleboard out yeah, and, yeah. you know, going on that. Um, so, yeah, I've just, I think I've always appreciated the outdoors and over the past two years, I've appreciated it even more and yeah. longed for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, the moments where we've been able to <laughs> travel a bit further, yeah. like yeah. Charlie, my, my wife and I and the kids were just like, right, let's go to the islands, yeah. let's go. yeah. Let's go up to the highlands. Yeah. And, and yeah. Well, this is it. It's like, I, you know, I feel that whenever we get out of the, the kind of city limit, we live on the city limit, I suppose. So. Yeah. Um, but there's this way it feels like something just reaches into your gut and just starts un unjumbling everything mm -hmm. and untying all the knots and all the yeah. stuff. And, you know, I think we talk about it sometimes that it's technology, it's overexposure to information, but also, like, it's people as well, isn't it? It's. Yeah. It's the scale at which we are maybe trying to serve people or mm. think about good causes for humanity and to not carry the weight of that. There yeah. is something about getting into nature which is, like, brutally, it's self-sustaining, you know. Mm. There was something about lockdown where you went outside and you thought, oh, these seasons are ticking on and uh, the roads are getting eaten up by the roots. You ever see that? <laughs> You're like, well... There you go. Like this tree is going to overpower the concrete, and yeah. and there is something about nature which is it's it's overwhelming, and it kind of mm -hmm. says everything will just keep going according to some pattern. Yeah. When it feels like our order that we've created as people that got massively shafted over yeah. over COVID, so to go out into an environment which was completely moving in its own cycle and mm -hmm. seasons, I think there was something sort of quietly reassuring and a bit humbling about the. Yeah. The nature of, of that yeah yeah, yeah. it's 100% and I think also like something I've 
come to realize recently is is the privilege of it and hmm. like thankfully in edinburgh where we live like there's green space around us and regardless of whether you can get out of edinburgh or not yeah, yeah. you can find green space um but for me like traveling even like somewhere like up to nethy bridge yeah. in the cairngorm national park yeah. or out to harris which is one of my favorite places mm. in the world <laughs> Um, that's just a huge privilege yeah. um, and something that's growing in me somehow and I don't quite know what this may or may not lead to later is actually like how how can other people who maybe aren't as privileged mm-hmm. as me like financially or stable job or whatnot experience something of that outside of their own city or yeah. location as well Um so yeah, I I think it it has the outdoors just has such a, such an ability to bring healing, bring refreshment, bring perspective, yeah. bring sheer wonder. Um, yeah, I've I've loved that, and I want other people to yeah fully in, embrace and experience that as well. You tried it with the hammocking, right? You did a bit of hammocking. <laughs> yes. I did a bit of forest bathing. Forest bathing. Yeah. Right. What's know. forest bathing? This is, this <laughs> oh is gosh, you've tested me now. So it's, um, I can't even remember the, the Japanese for it. So there's we'll, Japanese for it. Yeah. We'll, we'll put, we'll put this on there. We'll put that in the show notes. In the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, it's birthed out of a Japanese concept of literally like immersing yourself in a forest and being still and listening to the mm. forest, the winds, you know, in the trees, um, looking around at the forest and literally just soaking that in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I decided to give it a go. Um, when was that? Back in August, I had a bit of time off work. Yeah. And uh, my wife very kindly looked after our kids and sent me off uh, <laughs> for a bit. Um, and as part of that, I basically just rigged up this hammock in a forest uh just outside the Nethy Bridge. Oh, right. Yeah. So in like the Abernethy Forest, yeah. which is just oh, like a beautiful, be- beautiful Scots Pine Forest. Yeah. Um, and was just there for, I was, I think I was probably in the hammock for three hours. Right. Um, and, you know, didn't see anyone the yeah. whole time, didn't speak to anyone, but just like was just in there. Lame. And it, it was super peaceful. Yeah. Um, of refreshing and yeah but I think the the concept of forest bathing is is kind of embedded in this yeah uh, Japanese kind of concept and, and practice so, oh, love it yeah well what would it look like if if you could um, create something in the future like you're saying where you bring people away into that what would you hope people can walk yeah. into and experience where what would you take them to it's a great question um I think like like lots of us over lockdown, my mind was on mm. uh, <laughs> on <laughs> overdrive, kind of thinking through just different things and different ideas. I remember those calls. Uh, yeah, we, we had a good call about it and then maybe had a chat about it over a fire when we were allowed to meet as well. Um, but but for me, I this was quite a few years ago, actually. I um, had a conversation with someone in the church community actually I'm a part of um and this person was um a single mum uh, with a wee kids 
And the person leading the kind of gathering basically said, turn to your neighbor and um, share a memory from a holiday uh, that you've had. So, you know, I was thinking, oh, okay, I'll speak about that. And then this person I was next to said, oh, I'll tell you about a a holiday that I went on when I was mid-teens. And then she said after that, I've not been on holiday since then. Hmm. Um, And this person's probably like 30, mid-30s. And it's just like, wow, it's... I take it for granted that, you know, in normal times, I can go away every few months, you know, escape to the highlands, do whatever. But for a huge proportion of our world yeah huge proportion more yeah. narrowly of our city like they've maybe never left the city before yeah. um so in answer to your question i think what i would love to see at some point is something established that enables people to to get out of the city yeah don't feel they need to pay for it or yeah, you know yeah. um or pay a heavily subsidized amount but get out of the city and experience something of yeah. the wonder of being in the outdoors um and there's various ways that people can do that now there's um you know outdoor centers that give yeah. kids experiences there's um some charities that yeah, maybe give yeah. families who can afford a, an experience of a holiday um but yeah, it's just been something that I've been thinking about mm-hmm. and, you know, it's presented itself within my own, like, community that I'm a part of. Yeah. But, yeah. Who knows where that might go further yeah, down yeah. the line. But yeah, something that just introduces people to the outdoors, the nature that's around us. Yeah. Yeah. The majesty of the mountains. And to trust know. that that can do the work for yeah. someone. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that, man, like the... Um, Maybe it's this like coming out of lockdown thing six months into, uh, I guess, kind of pick up in society. Um, so easy just to like the head starts to grind a bit slower mm-hmm. and activities mount up, which it can be amazing. But just that pace of slowing down again yeah. um, at times I think would be really welcomed. And there was a time last Saturday where uh, my wife Ruth was like, hey, let's just go to Glencoe for yes. the day. And it took me 10 seconds. Like, uh, <laughs> All right, let's do it. And um, you know, I probably ranted in the car on the way up about how sort of exhausted this, that, and the next thing was. Yeah. And then pff, 10 minutes into walking towards a mountain and a river and, and having that, something like switches. Yeah. And then an hour up when you've, you know, you're sweating your way up a mountain. Um, suddenly, things seem very, very different. Yeah. And your whole sensation in uh, the body changes, the state of mind changes. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very dynamic switch. And it, I think there's more and more coming out about even just like the, the kind of um, sights that fill your vision. So if you're uh, this, this guy, uh, uh, Huberman, uh, Dr. Huberman, and uh, he was doing this work. So, look, if your eyes are basically just like an extension of your brain, then whatever fills the eyes affects the brain. So the right. fastest way to affect your brain is to change something <laughs> with what you see. Yeah. So it's like you wake up in the morning, look at an expansive view, and that causes your, your view to expand a bit yeah. more. And the, the impact of natural light on the eyes, that affects the mind. And, you know, I think, oh, it makes so much sense. Like, why is looking at a big yeah. view of dirt and 
grass. Why is that so beautiful? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. It's like it's just a, it's just a mountain. And I, but... and I wonder that coupled with other senses as yeah. well. Yeah, you know, yeah, like seeing it with the eyes, but then feeling it with yes. your hands. Yeah, like smelling the sea air or smelling uh-huh. the pine of the Could trees, or you know, taking your shoes off when yeah. you get to the beach and putting your feet in the water. Yeah, yeah, like sensory overload, but also like yeah. just an amazing uh, potential to bring a new perspective or ah. give a new lease of life so. yeah no it's a business and and you love the islands as well that's part of the story for for yourselves eh? it is it is yeah we um i think growing up we other than orkney i don't think we ever went to any of the scottish islands mm-hmm. um but really since then i've kind of like made up for it mm-hmm. <laughs> and that i just love going to the islands like even in a couple of weeks time we've got a wee weekend away, just my wife and I to Isla, mm-hmm. um, which would be good uh, for good lots for the of whiskey. reasons. <laughs> good for whiskey, yeah. um, and also just relaxing yeah, and being with views, each other. Yes, yes, and, and uh, whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Did we say whiskey? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think we did. Yeah, but um, but no, I there's something about islands which mm. impact me in a big way. Um, and I, I mean, I mentioned the Isle of Harris earlier. Um, my wife and I went to the Isle of Harris for our honeymoon. We got married back in 2013. And then since then, I think we've probably been there maybe six times, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, so it's quite a regular fixture. Let's get to Harris. And, um, and there, th- there's lots of reasons why we do that and some of what we've discussed already. Uh, definitely is is relevant to that um but i think particularly what's unique with islands um maybe not sky because you go over a bridge (laughs) (laughs) to sky controversial Um, bridge (laughs) exactly but for the most part to get to an island you need to get on a boat yes (laughs) (laughs) you need to take your feet off terra off off the hard land go onto a boat and you know it could be quite a choppy <laughs> ride over you you know go out on the deck of the boat and you're exposed to the elements in a way that you're not you're not otherwise um so there's something like psychologically whenever i step on a boat yeah i'm like i can breathe yeah. i can i can relax um this is me transitioning from you know what has been a busy time maybe at work mm-hmm. or whatever that's my transition on the boat to yeah. then stepping onto terra firma again, yeah. but this time on an island, yeah. um, something that is not my day to day. And for us, like huge, huge part of that is going to Harris. But equally, like there's so many beautiful islands um, on the west coast of Scotland. Yeah. Um, and I've been to Orkney a few times. Yeah. And Orkney is quite different from the west coast of Scotland, but is equally like mystical um and just like yeah really beautiful place yeah. and and on my to-do list to-go list is up to shetland i've never been there i would love to love to get yeah. up there at, at some point they're so. the best places they're absolutely fascinating um fascinating um pockets of where culture has both like sustained um, and seen change um over the years i went to this abandoned village on Sky last time I was there. Yeah. It was called uh, Brorig or um, Borig. So you park at this little church and you hike in. And you start to pass some ruined houses. Yeah. And then you, you pass a, a mine, a marble mine, uh-huh. which was incredible. 
seen all that and dug out, then you make your way through the gully, right down uh, by the sea. And there's got to be like, I don't know, 16, 20 houses uh-huh. just that have been like grown over by ferns, yeah. um, completely abandoned. I think it was cleared for, for sheep in yeah. the Highland Clearances back when. And so there's, a, I, I don't know, I always feel a sort of sadness in, in spaces like that. Um, yeah. Maybe everyone else who left had a better life after. <laughs> it's hard to say, but there was there was tragedy around the circumstance. But even going down to almost the main holdings, mm-hmm. it was a strip of uh, land there, and it looked like lettuces or or um, something had come through. And it was all like the planting of what had been there. It was right. still coming through in order. Yeah. It was still a right. single um, crop that was trying to come through year yeah. by year. Absolutely fascinating seeing this. Yeah. Still a lot of order in the way they created it, but of course, no roofs on any house. Everything had started to yeah. be eaten over. Um, yeah, these these places are are beautiful and haunting yeah. places. I I can't remember if it was that one on Sky, but I've certainly been to one on Sky. Yeah. That it was a bit of a yeah. walk in yeah. to get to it, and it was a village that was cleared as yeah. part of the Highland clearances. Um, and it's just it's just mind boggling. Mm. Um. And really haunting as well. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, we can look back over history and uh, literature and yeah, poetry and all yeah. this sort of stuff in Scotland to, to hear something of that uh-huh. haunting experience that it was for these communities. Yeah. But but so, something I'm quite interested in, in an island context, is also just like the, the repopulation of islands. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I've got a I've got a really good friend, um, actually, who I went to school with, and probably a fairly unlikely person to have upsticked upsticks and moved to the Isle of Lewis to become a crofter. Wow! Um, but he has, and like I've learned a lot about just that simple act of him going out there and taking on a very different life. Yeah. But then even like over the years, the conversations I've had with him just around his passion to actually see rural parts of Scotland, highlands and islands that mm-hmm. were maybe cleared, mm-hmm. you know, 100, 200 years ago. His passion to see those communities thriving mm-hmm. again. Yeah. And, um, and on Harris, like I, um, there's the Isle of Harris distillery. That's uh, a place. Which, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you and I have spoken about before <laughs> and they make an absolutely stunning gin uh, just now. Um, and they've done a brilliant job of the product, the marketing, yeah, the bottle, yeah. all this sort of stuff. Blinder. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the whiskey is maturing. Yes. Uh, I think they could legally sell it as whiskey just yeah, now, yeah. but they're they're waiting till the moment's right. But something of the vision of that distillery is actually to bring about employment opportunities yeah. for people on the islands, to maybe draw people to the islands, but importantly, to keep people on the yeah, islands as yeah. well. So I think it's going to take um, a whole range of things and like innovative like business and industry kind of setting up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm excited to see what yeah. you know revitalization of the islands might look like and yeah. what repopulation uh, of the islands might look like too. So. Yeah, wow. Um, I'm interested in some of your day to day kind of life things about how all this, um, how this comes together for you. Um, because what one thing I really enjoy is the way that you um, you have your hand in 
many fascinating and quite powerful things. Um, you, you do a Scottish public leaders program that helps folks uh, who have a faith kind of work out what that looks like in, in work. You're on the board of, a, of an outdoor centre. You are um, part of a, a local church. Um, so very much uh, run across uh, multiple areas. So, you know, how, how do you organise time and energy um, for, for you? Some people are hyper structured, compartmentalized, yeah. others it's it's a kind of a bit of a flow and a bit yeah. of a work through. How do, you, how do you do it all? So my wife is very good at being com- compartmentalized. Right. Um, when she's at work, she works really well and is mm. super productive <laughs> and has her to-do mm. list <laughs> and scores it off <laughs> and works all through it. Um, and when then she's at home, she's really good at being present right. and, <laughs> and are you the yeah. other way right <laughs> i'm probably the other way right um i struggle a little bit more I, I think my my work kind of bleeds into my non-work times right. a bit so i think that is definitely a challenge that i need to mm-hmm. be aware of um so i kind of call it out that that is a challenge right. that i need to right. be aware of and then when you call something out you're then in a position to be able to try put some things in place to actually navigate Ooh, that better that's cool how, how does that work for you so you observe something in yourself call it out yourself and then look at how to work with it yeah I, so i think um so we we do a thing at our work uh, it's called giant worldwide which yeah, is like yeah. a kind of um leadership kind of yeah. development suite of resources and their kind of mantra is like know yourself to lead yourself yes. Yeah. Um, and actually, the idea is that you're not actually going to be a particularly good leader if you don't actually know yourself, yourself and, yeah. and your tendencies and all this sort of stuff. Um, so there there are a whole range of different things that when you recognize like what your predominant voice is uh-huh. in a conversation, you can actually then also recognize what your less predominant voices are and actually you know do you intentionally need to focus on that a bit more and and one of the one of the things I was told at an early stage to kind of think about that was the illustration of writing Mm -hmm. so like I'm right-handed and my mentor when I met with him like just invited me to like yeah uh, write my signature on a bit of paper and I was like oh that's easy I'll do that and then he said right take your pen in your left hand yeah (laughs) um and do your signature as well (laughs) and I was like oh right okay um and obviously the writing was a bit wonky, but it was legible that mm-hmm. it was my uh, signature. So my mentor was then like, okay, talk me through what you had to do when yeah. you use your left hand. And, you know, you need to focus on it more. You need to take more time. You need to like more consciously kind of guide it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the same. It's the same with when we recognize our right hand tendencies. Yeah. We, we kind of do them pretty naturally when we recognize what our left hand is we actually need to take more time and more mm. effort and recognize, but also do something about it. Okay. Um, one, one kind of related to that, but definitely related to your broader question. One practical thing that I try and do um, is like use my commute as like a transition mm-hmm. period. Mm. Um, and like sometimes it's tempting to, oh, I've got a call at the end of the day. I'll do it on my walk home. Yeah. But actually, that's not particularly helpful because you come back 
into your home environment at, at the dinner table with your family and your mind's still yeah. going overdrive. Yeah. So I try and use my commute to um, shift down the gears. Yeah. Again, that's, that's kind of giant nice. language. You shift down the gears. Yeah. There's points on my commute home that I'm like, right, let's stop <laughs> thinking about work and start thinking about something else. Um, I might listen to some music. I might yeah. listen to a podcast about something which is completely different from my work. Um, so yeah, trying to have little transition points yeah, yeah, yeah. can can be useful. Yeah, okay. And and when you um, are you know dealing with the morning side of it and coming in into that, what's <laughs> what's some of your morning uh, vibe? <laughs> well, my morning vibe is pretty grumpy, to be honest. <laughs> I don't um, think I've ever seen you before, like, 9 or 10, oh, I think. Yeah. That'd be quite fun. You, you've seen me when I'm cheery, for the most part. <laughs> um, morning vibe is usually, yeah, pretty grumpy. <laughs> survival <laughs> moods. Caffeine helps. If I can get a coffee in me early, that's that's quite good. <laughs> Um, but yeah, scrabbling around a little bit, trying to get kids dressed. Mm-hmm. Um, got two kids; one is three, and the other is five and a half. Yeah. So they're not always great at getting themselves dressed. <laughs> so trying to do that, trying to then get my son to school, mm-hmm. my daughter to nursery, mm-hmm. and then get to work vaguely on time. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think morning routine for me is a bit survival mode. Yeah. Um, I really like that though because it feels quite honest and like survival mode for the first part of the day. It 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 is <laughs> and and I think that that maybe even ties into the previous point about knowing yourself to lead yourself <laughs> a little bit and like actually having like realistic expectations of myself mm. in the morning, mm. knowing that I'm actually mm-hmm. a bit of a grumpy person <laughs> and you know there's no point in me sitting down and having a deeply like spiritual moment mm. or reflective moment or whatever because actually like i struggle in the morning and i'm yeah. just grumpy and i'm not in a good place for that uh but then maybe carving out time later in the day or yeah. or having the stillness when i get to work yeah. for half an hour is is super helpful and that's a bit of a transition point yeah. so <laughs> i love that um what um what do you use to kind of um build yourself and grow what what books are you into at the moment um Book-wise for me, so I'm not like a huge uh, reader. Um, I consume quite a lot of podcasts. Um, So I do like listening to podcasts. Who do you go for? So funnily, it's not really a huge amount in like the kind of leadership development sphere because I get a bit of that through work. Um, it ties to our previous conversation about like nature and the outdoors Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I quite often just get my outdoor fix even if I'm in Edinburgh going to work like I'll listen to a thing called Scotland Outdoors which I get laughed at a little bit watching that because probably their demographic is like 50s 60s listen to it Um, but it's just like these two kind of 50 60 year olds presenters who basically go around scotland and go to islands and is it like those two guys from the show chewing the fat back in the day and they would <laughs> stand in the river they'd bathe in the river and they'd have their clothes nicked and <laughs> yeah probably probably not as funny as, as chewing the fat to be honest but like good and informative yeah. so so definitely podcasts yeah. is a big thing for me um i 
I like reading stuff that isn't my day-to-day work, so mm-hmm. I wouldn't go to, like, read about justice or yeah. <laughs> stuff yeah. like that. Um, I, I, I've got a bit of a soft spot for, like, architecture and design. Mm. Um, I lived with architects at university, right. um, and part of me was a bit like, you know, I was going to study these boring legal subjects, and they were going and making <laughs> models. <laughs> And doing all stuff like that. And I was a bit like, am I in the wrong job? (laughs) But I think I've come to realise that what I'm doing is right. I shouldn't be an architect, but actually I can learn from architecture. I can experience, I can look at the beauty of a building. So so quite often I've subscribed to a monthly architecture magazine, which is which is quite good. Got a bit of a Scandi kind of Japanese architecture vibe about it. quite like hutting uh, as What's well hutting? Uh, so <laughs> um, the reason i say kind of scandy vibe so in scandinavia hutting uh, is a big cultural thing right you know to get your fix of being in the outdoors a scandinavian family will go to their hut which their family mm. owns it might not be that far out the city it might yeah. be an hour outside of the city um so I've actually been reading a book about that recently, which is quite an interesting like comparative comparison between Scotland and Scandinavian right. countries. Yeah. But looking a little bit at like the ownership of land and how that's actually impacted the whole area of hutting. Hmm. Um, so in Norway and Sweden, for example, land is a lot more compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. There's smaller bits of land that are owned in Scotland in rural parts large 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 estates yeah Yeah, it kind of ties into some of the previous conversation about the clearances and and such like um so there's just not this like hutting culture as much in in scotland um but actually i kind of love the idea of it because it brings together the passion for nature and the outdoors that i have yeah but then also like design and architecture and and space and like so I don't know who who knows in the future. It'd be cool to like press into that more as an individual, but hopefully Scotland kind of embraces yeah. it a bit well, we, more. We as have well. the right to roam. Yeah. So you know you can jump anyone's fence just about and um, rake about. Or you can almost pitch a tent anywhere. <laughs> yes. You can, but you can't quite build a hut on, yeah, exactly. on it. But it's there's a funny you know we don't want the right to roam to actually become a kiss off to actually having more ownership of the land or more investment in it um, and having the possibility of that that obviously Scandinavian countries are more um, open to I think so and from from what I know from what I've read and heard like the kind of post-war periods Mm -hmm. have been quite key moments um, when it comes to land and in in Scandinavia post-war there was a a bit of a cutting up of the land and oh. a distribution of the land between mm. the population and you know as a result of that you know they made like yeah. huts on in the forest or you know whatever it was whereas here they just didn't have that like yeah. that that ownership remained in in in, in big estates uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and and such like so yeah i mean the right to roam in scotland's amazing yeah um but there's also some challenges with it as well and right. and again like 
you know, it's a privilege actually to go to the Highlands in order to take advantage yeah. of the right to roam if yeah. you can't afford to get there. Or <laughs> yeah, then, yeah. Then, then that's restricted as well. So. Right. so you're going for the decentralization of uh, land masses. I, 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 I think it needs to be a balance because like, there are some big estates that uh-huh. are doing some quite interesting things when it comes to rewilding and re- yeah. rewilding is a bit of a loaded term <laughs> um means different things to different people mm-hmm. um and actually tying into you know we've just been through cop 26 as well tying into the, the not only the climate crisis but also like the biodiversity crisis yeah. as well you know there's huge potential for these big land estates to come alongside that yeah. problem yeah um but equally there's challenges with the, the big land estate model as well yeah well um I love that we've gone from uh, <laughs> the global slave uh, trade and how that might be amended to our rewilding. Um, but so there must be lessons, I suppose. Like that's that thing of architecture must inform human rights as much as you know passions about humanity do inform spaces that we live in and the reason for those. And um, yeah. it's 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 always the the crossing of different boundaries and different spheres is going to enrich the field that you're in and is going to be completely necessary. Like, like we say, nature is probably the greatest inspiration for design, for engineering. Yeah. Um, and so for these tough issues that, that we're all working in, uh, we do require as many different forms of thinking and disciplines to, to create that. Yeah, yeah indeed. Well, um, and uh, where can people get in touch with you? as Um, you build a hut as I build a hut yeah (laughs) if anyone's interested in going in a little venture (laughs) to press into that more let me know um how can people get in touch uh I dabble a little bit on social media but I'm not prolific in any in any by any stretch of the imagination so I've got uh Instagram feed where Usually I put up stuff when I'm traveling, usually on the west coast of Scotland. Love it. So um, Andy Bevan 87. Uh, Twitter is the same handle. Uh, search me on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, give me a shout if you're wanting to chat about IJM yeah, as well. Yeah. Andrew.bevan at IJMUK.org. And the IJM website, that's... Yeah, I, IJMUK.org. Yeah. Check, check it out. And yeah. it's got load of information about what we do also some uh, job opportunities that come up every now and again there's a few on there just now so have a have a look brilliant thanks andy it's uh, amazing just to hear about the the range of passions that that you've had and always and the way you carry it i always really appreciate that um because i think you are involved at the front end of very difficult um and important matters but the way you hold them, uh, there's a grace about it and there's a hopefulness yeah. and a joy in, in the way that you deal with that. And in beautiful, you also, these passions around nature and uh, home and, and Scotland is a, is a beautiful thing. So thanks so much for sharing it. Brilliant. You're welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining the conversation. And thank you to Andy. Thank you all for bearing with the sound of my new denture, which I've been uh, getting to grips with the last couple of days. I'd love to hear from you. So drop me an email on markcameron at markcameron.co and let me know what you think. You'd love to chat coaching, leadership, justice. Get in touch.
Do share the episode with folks you know and check out IJM.